Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to New Books in Sports, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. I am Dr. Jorge Red of Texas Tech University, the host of the channel. Today, we will be talking to Gerald Gems, the author of his new, uh, the author of a new book called "Sports and the Shape Sport and the Shaping of Civic Identity in Chicago." Jerry, how are you this morning? Welcome to the show. Well, good morning. Thank you for inviting me. Good. Jerry, I really, uh, really enjoyed the book. Uh, I think that there's a lot of very good information here about how different constituencies in the city of Chicago have utilized sport to their benefit or to claim space in, in, the, uh, in the city. Uh, and I, I, we're going to talk a little bit about those various groups as we go forward. Um, before we get started, please tell us a little bit about yourself and how you got interested in this particular topic. Well, I am a native of Chicago, and much of my um, personal and professional life has revolved around the city. And so I, uh, yeah, that, that has been a particular interest of mine. As you know, the University of Arkansas uh, Press has a series on um, urban uh, sport and urban studies, but um, they have no no book, uh, surprisingly, uh, about Chicago. And so I thought it was uh, time for somebody to um, put that story out there. Uh, personally, just in terms of my own credentials, I um, was a professor at North Central College in Naperville, Illinois, a suburb of Chicago for many years. And much of my personal and professional life has revolved around the uh, city. But uh, uh, I've been the uh, past president of the North American Society for Sport History, vice president of the International Society for the History of Physical Education and Sport, a Fulbright scholar. And this is, I think, uh, about my 20th book. And uh, now I am retired as professor emeritus and have more time to um, involve myself in writing books and continuing my research. Well, let me let me ask you this and build on the point that you brought up in regards to the uh, University of Arkansas series. Um, I, I, I'm familiar with the series. I'm familiar with some of the cities that they have, uh, the, the, the books that have been published on specific cities. Why do you think Chicago was overlooked? I think possibly because there is a, quite a bit of um, information out there about Chicago. There's been a number of books about Chicago. There have been uh, uh, even more um, articles, uh, journal articles about Chicago. Uh, it's you know almost constantly in the media, um, but I don't know why they made that particular decision. Okay, okay. Well, then, Jerry, let's just start going through the various chapters. Uh, of the book, and and I just want to ask you a couple of questions about each each section. Um, in chapters one through three, you provide a bit of the background of the city of Chicago and what and what makes it unique. What is unique about sport in the city of Chicago as compared to say New York City or Los Angeles or any other major metropolitan area? Well, I think, first of all, its geographic location has a lot to do with um, the role of sport in the city. It's, I mean, since the 19th century, it's been the economic center of the Midwest. It's been a transportation center. It was and still is, I think, the railroad center of the United States. Uh, its airport, the O'Hare Airport, um, has for a long time been the most um, uh um, used airport to, uh, in in the states. Uh, uh, it's also in terms of sport. It's also always been a center of sport. Both the national and the American leagues in baseball were founded here. The Negro National League was founded in Chicago sometime later. 
It has been uh, a leader in the parks and playgrounds movement uh, that assimilated immigrants, as, as, as well as um, uh, civic beaches. It has a number of iconic stadiums. Um, and so it's, it's, it's been a locus for sport throughout um, most of its uh, urban history. Okay, okay. Um, you know, one of the things that, that I research is the, the role, obviously, of race or ethnic groups in sports. And you do that, I think, very well in uh, Chapter 4. Uh, what role does race play in shaping sport of Chicago, the sport in Chicago? And specifically, I want you to talk about how African-Americans use sport to claim space and to claim really citizenship in the in the city of Chicago, especially after the Great Migration. Yeah, uh, the Great Migration obviously had a lot to do with it. But even before the, the typical dates for the migration around the World War One era, uh, there were black groups uh, traveling from the South to Chicago. And even by uh, even before 1900, black baseball teams were playing interracial uh, matches here. And in fact, Rube Foster, who then founds the Negro National League in Chicago, is one of those itinerant um, baseball players who comes from Texas to the city mm-hmm. and begins playing with the, the black teams who are playing against uh, white teams in interracial matches, which would have been uh, certainly not even permitted in the South and unusual in other places. Um, but uh, about the time of the great, actually before the Great Migration, Jack Johnson, the great uh, black um, heavyweight champion, uh, comes to Chicago and lives here. And as you know, uh, his defeat of Jim Jeffries creates all kinds of um, issues with race relations in the United States and, and really challenges that, uh, you know, the, the white domination of the society. And as I said, Rube Foster then creates the Negro National League in Chicago uh, when blacks could not play in the white major leagues. You had um, uh, Fritz Pollard, who was the first uh, black to play quarterback and to coach in the National Football League in the 1920s already as a Chicagoan. The Harlem Globetrotters, uh, despite the name, were actually founded here in Chicago. Um, and Chicago is a very segregated city, even even today, it still is. Um, but sport was one um, way in which the different groups could interact. They played interracial games, and it was a way for blacks to really challenge these stereotypes about them. Uh, and they did so successfully. The, now, um, now, that, now that you said that they did that successfully, can you give us maybe one or two examples of, you know, from your research of African-Americans utilizing sport to successfully challenge certain notions about in themselves as individuals and as a community? Yeah, uh, the black baseball teams would often beat the white baseball teams. Um, in terms of the Olympics, which is a, a, you know, obviously an international sport, Chicago produced uh, the some of the first uh, black Olympians, Sal Butler in long jump, uh, Ralph Metcalf in the, uh, uh, was a sprinter, Tidy Pickett was the first uh, black female athlete on the Olympic team. And this all uh, enabled blacks to challenge these notions of, um, um, you know, black ability or, or, or uh, these, uh, these, these false notions of white male supremacy, things like this uh, in a very public manner to break down these stereotypes uh, about the blacks and then later other ethnic groups as well. Okay. And now that you mentioned other ethnic groups, uh, in Chapter 5, you talk about the role that ethnicity plays in shaping sport in Chicago. Can you talk specifically about two or three of the major ethnic groups and how they utilize uh, sport in a way noted, in a way similar to African Americans? Yeah, in fact, um, Chicago has been uh, named the most diverse uh, of American cities because of all of its ethnic groups. Um, and in fact, um, there, there were, as I said, a number of them. Among the Irish, who were among the first. Uh, Charles Comiskey was Irish, the founder of uh, the White Sox team and, and one of the founders of the American League in baseball. The first great um, black uh, celebrity superstar in the 1880s was a guy named Mike King Kelly, an Irishman. Uh, mm-hmm. Many stories about him we don't have time to go into. 
Yeah. Uh, but the, the Germans were also an early uh, group that migrated here, were very important in the labor movement, but also in the founding of um, bowling, the American Bowling Congress, as well as gymnastics, as were the Poles and the Czechs. Um, the Scandinavians brought skiing and skating uh, to the U.S., and the Italians were very prominent in boxing and, and um, baseball. In fact, uh, one who's still very prominent, Jerry Colangelo, came from Chicago area, now owns, I think, uh, four major sports um, franchises. Mm -hmm. uh, the, the Jewish people were very prominent also in, in boxing. Uh, Abe Saperstein becomes the owner of the Globetrotters team. And more currently, a uh, large Hispanic population, and of course they have their superstars as well, uh, two that would be well known to probably most readers would be Minnie Minoso, uh, right. great for the White Sox, great Cuban player, and, and for the Cubs, Sammy Sosa, great Dominican home run hitter. So almost every group can relate to sport in, in uh, Chicago and had their own heroes that they could idolize and also help to assimilate these groups into uh, the larger uh, social and, and public network. And, you know, that's that's a key point, I think, that you're that you're bringing up the the ability of these ethnic groups to be able to assimilate into the broader society. Uh, again, like you did with African-Americans, can you maybe give us one or two examples off the top of your head concerning how a specific group, you know, a, a, when you, you mentioned Minnie Minoso, you mentioned Sammy Sosa. Um, obviously when Sammy Sosa was at his height, at his height with the Cubs, everyone was on board with, with Sammy Sosa. Um, how did the city perceive him and his Dominican background? Uh, and have, was, were there any changes that took place as a result of the way that Sammy's career ended, uh, you know, in, in, in the majors? Yeah, I think, you know, it's, it's in, in that respect, it's similar to uh, the Jackie Robinson story, you know, uh, in terms of being able to break down barriers, uh, having various different ethnic or racial groups feeling a bigger part of the uh, you know, American polity. And uh, there was, I mean, Sosa was a hero on, uh, on the level, at least, to, at least the Chicagoans, on the level of Michael Jordan. I mean, it, he was that big in the city. Um, you know, with the uh, uh, doubts about uh, his performance relative to, you know, PEDs and, and things like that, uh, kind of tarnished that image, which never did with, with Jordan. But he's it, I, I certainly among the Dominican population and the Hispanic population, as well as, you know, most other uh, Chicago Cubs fans, he's still considered, uh, they, they, you know, with, as, as people do tend to look past some of these other things uh, that might tarnish their legend and, and still hold them up as someone who broke barriers. Okay. Okay. Well, okay. So we've talked a little bit about race. We've talked a little bit about ethnicity. Let's talk a little bit about class. In chapter six, you, you know, the same type of question. Uh, how did the different classes utilize sport in Chicago? How did they use this endeavor to shape their identity? What claims did the various groups, the various class groups, make through their use of sport? Well, social class has always been a major factor in Chicago. It's a working class town. It always has been. It revels in that identity. Uh, I think you saw sports, uh, well, the allowance of sport to provide uh, or basically reinforce some of those class divisions. Early on in the 19th century, you had the wealthy with their yacht clubs and their uh, segregated city or country clubs out in the suburbs, uh, with the middle class trying to imitate the upper class with their tennis clubs, which were mostly in the city. Mm -hmm. But then you had the working class who didn't have uh, you know, designated spaces that they could call their own other than the parks and the playgrounds, which they did. Sometimes working class gangs took over the parks. Um, and for the working class, uh, physical prowess is particularly important. And so they took to particular sports such as uh, boxing, and where uh, they could display their toughness publicly in the Golden Gloves boxing matches, the Catholic Youth Organization boxing matches. Uh, mm -hmm. The settlement houses were developed uh, in Chicago and spread around the, the country uh, around the turn of the last century. 
uh, specifically for the working classes. They provided teams for them. The uh, industrial team started in Chicago, the George Pullman um, Railroad uh, Manufacturing uh, Company, uh, built a company town outside the city and used sport as a means to keep his workers um, occupied in their leisure time. Bars weren't allowed in the, in the town so that he would have uh, reliable workers and productive workers. And this idea spread throughout the entire country. So uh, they had ample opportunity to play on the industrial teams. Uh, and in fact, it was a great uh, opportunity for workers because they spent at least half their day, maybe most of their day, practicing on the company team. In fact, uh, teams like the Chicago Bears started as industrial uh, teams, you know, uh, just after World War I. The other sport, particularly that the working class adopted as their own, was softball. Softball was founded in, in Chicago in 1887. It becomes um, really taken over by working class clubs and working class teams who play, still play a particular version of the sport with a 16-inch ball and no gloves, okay? Uh, anybody that plays with a glove is considered um, less than masculine, and, it, and women play as well. Uh, so it's uh, it's it's still considered um, a very kind of rough, tough working class sport that's played throughout the city, even today. In fact, uh, you know, some years ago it had its own newspaper. Um, you know, uh, was covered in the media. Uh, huge numbers of teams. I think that's covered somewhat in the book. Let me let me ask you uh, let me ask you this: another working class sport, and this is a book that was part of this series. Uh, it's uh, The Early Years of Chicago Soccer by Gabe Logan. Uh, what can you tell us about working class uh, teams and soccer in Chicago? Yeah, Gabe has done an excellent job uh, and really some groundbreaking work there in terms of uh, soccer, which you know isn't as much followed in the U.S. as it is elsewhere in the world. But uh, it was uh, a number of working class teams, again, who were able to uh, adapt and bring bring their sports from Europe over here, incorporate them in the American system. A lot of the early teams were Irish teams, but as other ethnic groups came to the city, they formed their own teams. And uh, before the World War One era, they already had a uh, international league that they participated in. So again, it was a way for different groups to maintain their own cultures, but also to assimilate them to some degree. Um, in the American system through sports and, and the whole idea of competition as the basis for the capitalist system, whether they knew it or not, they were learning certain of uh, the American value systems just by participation in the league in these competitive events. Let me let me ask you about something a little bit more current then, if I may. Uh, what is the presence, I mean, given that in Chicago, when you're talking about Latinos, which is which is my area of, it, of research, when you're talking about Latinos, primarily you're speaking about Mexican Mexicans, Mexican Americans, uh, Salvadoreños, Guatemaltecos. Uh, are there any type of soccer leagues that are predominantly uh, uh, Latino in Chicago at the current time? Yeah, in fact, uh, there, there's actually two large um, Latino. Groups. The Puerto Ricans were actually the uh, uh, the larger group uh, that settled in Chicago, and and both have both uh, largely concentrated to in, in two separate Hispanic uh, uh, neighborhoods. Still in the city, as I said, it's still quite a segregated city. But yes, they do have um, their um, soccer leagues. Uh, the the uh, Chicago suburbs do as well. Aurora, which is west of Chicago. Uh, has a uh, large group of um, Mexican soccer players. Uh, some play in leagues, others just play, uh, you know, in the in the park districts. But some are organized leagues for for youth groups, schools, uh, and adult teams as well. So it's pretty widespread uh, throughout the Chicago area at this point. Okay. The other the other sport that the Latinos are very much engaged in is boxing as well. There are a number of boxing clubs. Uh, the Chicago, well, right now, because of the virus, they're called off. I was supposed to go to the Golden Gloves matches tonight, but many of the fighters in uh, in the boxing matches are Latinos as well. Okay. Both men and women, both. Oh, okay. All right. Uh, speaking of women, uh, in Chapter 7, you move on and you talk about the role of women in sports. So how were women initially limited in their ability to participate in sport in Chicago? 
and how did they how have they challenged uh, these notions in uh, over the uh, over the years well, actually, women were not very limited in Chicago as an exception to many other places around the U.S. Because, as you know, uh, you know, university professors and other women and, and men as well were um, uh, trying to um, and not necessarily terminate, but transform uh, women's sports into playing in a less masculine fashion, concerned about their physical health, reproductive abilities, and the mental aspects of competitiveness uh, that men exhibited. And so they tried to create these play days for women. Well, in Chicago, that didn't go over so well, whereas the schools adhered to it. Women had plenty of opportunities to participate in sport uh, in the park district teams, in, um, in, on the industrial teams, in the um, YWCAs, in the Catholic Youth Organization, in the private clubs who would take working class women in their club if they had uh, outstanding ability. The All-American Girls Professional Baseball League was founded in Chicago. Uh, Chicago provided um, many of the early women's sports stars. Uh, Cecil Richards was a national, well, actually claimed world boxing champion by the 1890s already. Um, you had Margaret Abbott, who was a Chicagoan who won uh, first gold medal in golf in the 1900 Paris Olympics. Uh, Chicagoans were among the earliest Olympians, and they, they among the earliest Olympic teams, Chicagoans uh, provided um, many of the members of those teams on the track teams, on the gymnastic teams, and a number of other cases. They also had national um, industrial basketball champions, things like that. So. Chicago was always uh, a hotbed for women's sport, uh, in contrast to much of the other, uh, many of the other parts of the, of the country. So again, just like the ethnic groups, sport enabled women to challenge these stereotypical notions of them as the weaker sex, um, as you know, um, ways to challenge all these these notions, and it carries over into the workforce. Then, uh, with you know, later on we have you know whole feminist movement and Billie Jean King and people like this, but. It uh, allows women to challenge, just like the, the ethnic groups, these, these um, negative notions about their physical abilities. Okay, okay. All right, so we, we, the next particular area that you cover then now shifts over to religious groups. And, you know, you've mentioned the Catholic, the, the, the CYA uh, 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 on a couple of occasions. Uh, how did the various religious groups, particularly the Catholics, utilize sports to claim space in Chicago? And I know you you did a, a wonderful article a few years ago on uh, uh, Catholic high schools playing football in Chicago and sort of the significance of that. Why don't you sort of talk about what you discuss in the chapter and and maybe bring in a little bit of what you did in that article? Okay. The um, well, Chicago has been known as the most Catholic city in the country. Uh, that's probably still true. Many of these ethnic groups that we just mentioned very briefly were Catholics. Um, some of the Germans, certainly the Irish, the Italians, the Poles, some of the Czechs, um, and Hispanics all, you know, largely followed the Catholic religion. So, so Catholicism has been a large part of. Uh, Chicago um, since the mid 19th century, and so uh, the the Catholics had their own separate uh, athletic leagues, as did the public schools. Uh, since shortly after the 19 uh, the turn of the, the 20th century, and uh, in 1927, uh, you know, the Catholics. Catholic League decided to challenge the public league champions to a city championship in football. Right? Uh, this game comes off. It's uh, eventually termed the Prep Bowl, kind of like the Super Bowl of uh, um, professional football as far as the Chicago's are concerned. And this was an annual game that kept going on and on and on uh, until I think about 1974. But uh, actually, it's still played today, but it's, it's, it's no longer played between the two best teams because the um, uh, Chicago, or the, rather the Catholic schools were accepted into the state association in the early 1970s and now play for the state championship. The city championship isn't considered as big anymore, and so they usually their runner-up teams play, still playing that game. 
but it's not as big. But it was so huge at this time in 1937. It, the game is always played in Soldier Field, uh, you know, the, the biggest stadium in the in the city. More than 120,000 people attended the high school game, and they they often had large crowds, not quite that big, but all you know, nine, you know, 90,000, over 100,000, 110,000, but. You know, that's more people than ever even seen a Super Bowl. In, in yeah, I was, was going to say that you, you realize that even when, when you're talking to someone who lives in Texas, when you mention 120,000 people going to a high school football game, even that that's but that will impress even someone in, in the state of Texas. Because, yeah, I mean, because you know, in we'll, Texas, we'll have, you guys got some big high school stadiums as well. <laughs> absolutely. Absolutely. But I mean, I, I have heard of crowds. In the 40s or 50,000s uh, here in the state uh, at various times, but I've never I'd never heard of a of a of a of a high school football crowd hitting uh, six figures. Yeah, that's more than I've ever seen a professional game and even seen a Super Bowl. So that'll give you some idea of the interest uh, in the game. Um, and this was and ironically, you know, a lot of the uh, players in on the public league teams were Catholics themselves. In fact, in this biggest game in 1937, I mean, the, um, the, the Catholics brought out their, their, their star quarterback with dislocated shoulder and, and strapped him up and had him play anyway. It was so important. And, and the top player on the uh, other team, on the public league team, was a Catholic himself, Was led the nation in scoring that year with, I think, over 200 points or something like that. It was ridiculous. Mm-hmm. But, you know, uh, this was played out annually, and it, it meant much more than football to them. It was about, you know, who, who, even though there was a Catholic mayor, he had to split his time and sit half, half the game on one side of the stands and half the game on the other side. And eventually it brought the two teams together. What they eventually did um, in the 1930s is, after the game was over, to show, in a sense, no hard feelings, they joined the stars from both teams and created an all-star team that then would traveled to Arizona and, and uh, Los Angeles, I believe, to play some of the schools out there. And so, again, it was this kind of this merging uh, of different, different religious groups into uh, uh, an American whole as one American team rather than uh, the public's role is considered Protestants, even though, as I said, many of the public school students were, were Catholics. I mean, uh, I can relate to this personally. We went to Catholic school. Uh, but and, and the tuition was only two dollars a month, but we couldn't even pay that. So my mother became the cook for the school. Um, uh-huh. You know, but many of these kids who couldn't afford to go to a parochial school went to the Catholic school, even though they're Catholic. So oftentimes it was Catholics playing against other Catholics. But the but the designation was if you went to public, you were less than a real Catholic. You were, you know, somebody else considered a Protestant. Yeah, yeah, and and, and believe me that that. Uh that point that you've just brought up brings back a lot of memories uh, for me uh, growing up in 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 Miami in the in the Cuban American section of the city in the in the 1960s if you if you sent your kids to public school then you were somehow uh not as catholic as you were supposed to be so uh, yeah. that's a very interesting point yeah i think there were a couple of other um uh, ways in which the catholics made a uh in, in some ways, changed sport in, in um, DePaul University, which had been a basketball power for many years and is, is uh, currently the largest Catholic uh, university in the country in terms of uh, student enrollment. But in the 1940s, um, DePaul had a basketball player named George Mikan, who was, I think, about six foot ten, one of the first, one of the very first really big men who transformed the game. They had to come up with rules about goaltending and dunking and things like that. And then he goes on to revolutionize the pros, playing for the uh, you know Minneapolis Lakers, which they were at the time, and and other big men would then follow, you know, which which changed the nature of the game, such as Bill Russell and Walt, and Will Chamberlain, people like that. Another Catholic school, Loyola University, in uh, 1963, uh, won the NCAA championship in remarkable fashion, I think, in an overtime game with Cincinnati by playing four black players, which was. Uh, first at the time, there had been three players in the team, four, and then eventually, as you would know, Texas Western actually fields an entirely black team to win the championship. But this was a revolutionary change, a step-by-step change in the basketball world uh, and in terms of uh, acceptance of, of different racial or ethnic groups uh, within the society. 
in sport, you know, sport provides that opportunity uh, on a very public display uh, for the whole country and whole world to see, actually. Yeah. Um, and, and we've we've sort of touched on it uh, in our discussion a little bit about the role of high school sports. And, and one of the one of the questions or one of the areas that I, I'm always very interested in, because I do research a lot of, about high school sports is, you know, high school sports are tremendously important. I mean, you know, you, you can't live anywhere in, in, in the state of Texas uh, and, and not recognize that. Uh, even in the larger metropolitan areas, it, it, especially high school football, is huge here. Um, how does high school sports fit into the overall relationship of various groups in the city of Chicago? You know, you have some schools that maybe are predominantly uh, of this particular ethnic group versus playing schools from another different ethnic group or another racial group. How does high school sports play into this story? Yeah, high school sports has a lot to do with it. Uh, it Maybe not as important as things are in Texas, but uh, certainly early on, the students of the high schools actually formed their own athletic conferences uh, by the um, 18, late 1880s, 1890s already. And uh, adults tried to take control of that uh, process and uh, administer it. By 1895, the University of Illinois runs a track meet and tries to incorporate the students into a, a state association, which wasn't entirely successful. But similar to the um, challenge matches between the Catholics and the public schools, in, uh, you know, Chicago was, has had the nickname of the second city, I mean, and the Windy City, and the way those came about was, uh, you know, Chicago was growing at such a fast rate that it fully expected to surpass New York, which is why it got the 1893 uh, World's Fair. And the New Yorkers gave the Chicagoans the, the nickname of the Windy City, not because of the climate, but because they were always bragging about how great Chicago was. And so in 1902, uh, the New Yorkers challenged Chicago to a high school football match, which would be considered the national championship. So the New Yorkers come to, to Chicago. They play at the University of Chicago field. Uh, the Chicagoans have a great team. Hyde Park High School has got Walter Eckersall, who's still considered one of the greatest uh, college quarterbacks ever, and a black athlete named Sam Ransom, who's actually the star of the team. Uh, Chicago wins 105 to nothing. And it played a revolutionary style of game, you know, whereas the New Yorkers would play the old uh, style of you know, smash mouth football, just. Um, you know, pileups at the line. The Chicago ones were running reverses, running the ends uh, with a lot of speed. I think uh, Ransom scores like seven touchdowns or something. And so the New Yorkers are so upset, they actually hire one of the Chicago coaches to um, come and coach their team next year. And then the Chicago ones go to New York the following year in 1903, right? Uh, two different teams. They have to call the game off. Uh, after about three quarters because of darkness, and the Chicagoans were winning at that time 75 to nothing. So two years in a row, Chicago decimates New York in this supposedly national football championship, which allows the Chicagoans again to, to claim that they are better than New York. They're not the second city. Uh, they're playing a whole new brand of, of football, which will then turn into the forward pass and everything uh, a few years later. The other thing about the high school uh, was that Amos Alonzo Stagg, very famous uh, coach uh, at the University of Chicago, starts running national invitational tournaments for both basketball and track. Um, he would not invite Catholic schools, and so Loyola University starts its own national uh, basketball tournament for, Chicago, for Catholic schools around the country. These are, you know, they invite state champions uh, from the different states to come and play in this tournament. This went on for a number of years until the um, athletic association steps in because obviously what they were doing was getting uh, a head start on everybody else in terms of uh, getting to to see and assess the top high school athletes in the entire country, who, who they would then try to recruit to their particular schools for their teams. And so um, this was eventually stopped, um, but it was for you know, 20 years or so, a, a tremendous opportunity for 
both the University of Chicago and um, Loyola to maintain um, prowess in, in their athletic teams. And it's, it's really part of the early process of, of recruiting that we see so much about today always in the news and, and scandals that the, you know, payoffs the students and, and type, other types of things. This was going on way back then already. But these high school teams are important also because what it does is um, before and still today, as I said, a, a lot of the Chicago neighborhoods are still ethnically based neighborhoods. And um, years ago, you know, somebody from another group just walked through. They might get beat up just, just for being in the wrong place. But uh, by the turn of the century and thereafter, you had the states um, all requiring mandatory education, uh, in, in, in at least at the age of 16. And so all these different ethnic groups then started attending the high schools, and the, the high school teams then became not just any one specific ethnic group, although it might be if it was simply um, located within a, a purely ethnic neighborhood. But when they, they um, brought in students from different ethnic groups, the best players from each ethnic group might be on the team. Again, it presented an image and, and eventually a breakdown of these ethnic stereotypes into a larger identity as an American team, not just a Polish team or um, you know, a German team, an Irish team, or whatever, whatever it might be. Um, and, and, you know, what role, let me just sort of back up just a little bit then, what role does class, you know, in, you know, in, in my research here in Texas, you know, for example, in El Paso, uh, in the early 1920s, when you're starting to play foot, high school football, you'll have a school uh, that's called El Paso Bowie. It's 99.9% Mexican. And then they'll, they'll play El Paso Austin, which is 99% white. And the, the football rivalry becomes a way for that ethnic rivalry to play itself out. Uh, are there any examples like that in, in the city of Chicago? Maybe not so much uh, with ethnic groups, but like maybe diff, you know, the, this school is in the wealthy part of town versus this school's in the poor side of town. And, and how, does, how does that play out? Yeah, you see it on, on both uh, racial and ethnic lines. Uh, some of the um, uh, ethnic neighborhoods, especially in Hispanic neighborhoods, where all the, uh, the soccer teams uh, are prominent and, and often better than perhaps the white teams from uh, you know other areas. Uh, you still see that process playing out, but you also see it. Uh, in racial groups as well, especially, as I said, Chicago is still a very segregated city, especially in terms of African-Americans living uh, in particular areas in the south side and the west side. And those schools are entirely uh, African-American. And so the kids, all the kids in that team would be black players. Um, and again, it's a, it's, it's a way for them to, um, similar to 100 years ago, to uh, break not on break down stereotypes. Hopefully, they're not as as stringent as they they had been. Uh, but it's a way for them to get uh, publicity they wouldn't get normally uh, because they are covered in the media, the newspapers, and on the television. Um, you know, uh, throughout the season, um, and especially in basketball as well. And so they're getting a lot of media coverage that they wouldn't ordinarily get. Um, and so it, it does help to break down those barriers and provide, um, you know, a, a more positive image of different groups. Now, you said you said something very interesting just now. You brought up the point of, you know, that that things in certain ways are as they were 100 years ago. Has you, you and you've, you've reiterated that the city of Chicago is still very, very segregated, but. Have things moved in a positive direction? Are they continuing to move in a positive direction if, if they have? I, yeah, I think incrementally. I think sports is, is a, a great social leveler in that respect. Uh, you know, uh, but it, all, it also creates other kinds of issues, I think. You know, for example, you've got, you know, um, I know, I know of situations where I've had one in my own class, but, you know, uh, poor kids who, who look to sport, professional sport, as their way uh, to a better life, to, um, you know, greater socioeconomic status, but it's not a realistic for most people. You know, very, very small percentage of people are going to make it to professional levels and 
and those careers are quite short. But kids who believe that they're going to do it, I mean, there's, you know, I know a story of a kid who's eight, it was eighth kid on the bench, that, you know, he's rarely playing, but he still believes he's going to make it in the NBA, that coach just doesn't like me. Sooner or later, somebody's going to see how good I am. In my own class, I had a situation with a kid, um, you know, who were Division three school. Uh, you know, he, he wasn't even starting in a Division three school. So he transfers to USC, think he's, he's going to get a better shot at the NFL. I mean, that's just not reality. But, you know, kids have these dreams, and they're, but they're not very realistic. And so I, in some ways, that's, it's counterproductive. In other ways, it, uh, it does provide these kids with um, not only a, a better sense of identity, and, and um, especially in the inner city here in Chicago, we have huge problems with gangs and, and shootings. Um, you know, it, it keeps them out of trouble. It gives them a more positive um, approach to life and, and hopefully some, some sense of security, um, although neighborhoods are pretty rough uh, in some places. Okay. Well, Jerry, we, we've covered a, a, a wide swath of sport in Chicago, but up till now, we haven't talked about really very much about professional sports. And uh, I, I want to just shift gears to that for, for, for this last part of our discussion. Uh, as far as pro teams are concerned, Cubs fans, for example, are perceived as being, quote, different than those of other major league baseball teams. Uh, how how are they different if they are? And how do you think that that maybe ties in with the identity of Chicago? The Cubs fans being Chicagoans, how does that sort of flesh out this story that you've been telling in this book? Well, I think I don't know that, uh, you know, from my perspective, that Cubs fans are much different from other fans, but uh, perhaps to others around this around the country they may be i think they got they very early on got uh um there was an image of cub fans as being very rowdy which which at that time was was true i think i tell some stories in the book about how a wealthy man would not let her daughter marry uh the guy who was the cub center fielder at the time because of the nature of um their lifestyle and, and a lot of that was brought about by, as I said, mentioned earlier, King Kelly, um, who was a pretty rowdy guy. And there's some really interesting stories about him in the, some of them, which I put in the book. But he was the great, the first great superstar in, in, in baseball, but a heavy drinker as well. Uh, there were stories about Cubs fans early on, about around the turn of the 20th century, who would bring their guns to the ballpark. And they would intimidate uh, opposing pitchers by shooting it off as they started to pitch. I mean, these guys would be spooked, you know. Um, yeah, yeah. So, but and and you know, but uh, the I guess relative to Cubs fans, then you get to the 1970s where we had the group known as the Bleacher Bums, uh, you know, young working class guys in hard hats uh, who would uh, play pranks and joke with the opposing players and. Uh, or maybe drop beer on them if they tried to catch a fly ball near the wall or something like that. Uh, but those all um, added to kind of this idea of the rowdy uh, Cub fans. But that was generational, I think. The, the bleacher bums today are now older, middle-class uh, people who um, they can't really reserve their seats, but they're in, in de facto uh, reserve because each, each person knows who sits where and and their friends until they they die they attend almost every game but um the wrigley the whole wrigley area which had been a working class area has now been uh gentrified and now it's really a, a hangout for millennials and uh younger people uh in fact now they call wrigley the world's largest outdoor bar and People go there basically to party, to have a good time, regardless of the score of the game, uh, which is very different from Sox fans on the uh, south side. The Sox fans basically take an oath uh, when they've been asked, you know, who's your favorite team? They'll always say the Sox and whoever is playing the Cubs. So uh, the Sox fans still have that rowdy image. I think 
probably the the uh, well certainly it goes all the way back to the Black Sox and gambling, which uh, and and the whole next decade was the Al Capone decade, which is still presented Chicago with a, a very negative image that it still carries, but. The Sox fans were really known for, um, in 1979, what they called disco demolition. A local DJ had encouraged uh, Sox fans to come to the ballpark, um, all rock and roll fans or heavy metal fans or whatever, uh, to bring hated disco records to the ballpark. It was a doubleheader. I think it was with Detroit Tigers, if I remember correctly. But uh, during uh, during intermission between the games, they stacked the records up around second base, and they were going to blow them up. Well, it turned into a huge riot. It damaged the field. Uh, the the uh, young fans ran all over the field, rioted to some extent, and the Sox actually had to forfeit the second game and couldn't couldn't play it. But that's the image of Chicago fans. Um, although I said, it, it, you know, culture changes, generations change. Uh, Wrigley, the whole neighborhood has been very much gentrified, and so it's got a different image uh, today, um, in the sense of more of a partying atmosphere than than um, maybe a hostile atmosphere. It, it's, I certainly wouldn't equate it with, say, Philadelphia fans, especially for you know Philadelphia football fans, who I would say are much. Uh, let, uh, let me let me ask you: Are, are the is there a certain sense of difference? For Bears fans, Bulls fans, Blackhawk fans, are are they perceived as being different from the fans or uh, of the uh, uh, of their teams in in, in 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 various sports, or is this mostly a Cubs and maybe White Sox for, uh, thing? I I think it's it's mostly a baseball thing. Uh, there's clear divisions between the Cubs and Sox fans. Uh, but the Bear fans, I, and they're similar to any other football fans. They, they dress up in their costumes. They go to the game. You know, they cheer and they yell and they drink a lot of beer. Um, and the, the the Bulls fans still uh, are basking in the Jordan mania. You know, uh, that I mean, they don't have much to cheer about at this point. You know, the team's um, pretty bad. But... You know, the fact that Michael Jordan played here, they have, you know, a statue of him outside the stadium, which uh, only a few years ago was still the most visited tourist site in the city. Um, and, and as far as the NHL goes, they also have their, their stars in casting, you know, statues outside the, the same location. Um, you know, but they didn't have much to cheer about either. The 1960s was big when they had Bobby Hells, Dan Makita, and some um stanley cup wins and more recently with some of their uh younger stars but uh uh it's 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 a seasonal thing you know they they when they've got something to cheer about they can get rowdy uh but uh not on the level of the early cubs fans um but right now uh those teams are not performing very well and so uh the cubs uh you know especially with the world series win finally after more than a century have a huge following in the city well, you, you know what, Jerry, I, I do have to tell you, and, and this probably is going to going to hurt you a little bit uh, hearing this from me. But, you know, probably one of the greatest moments in my life was when the uh, uh, the Flor then Florida Marlins, my hometown team, defeated the Cubs in that National League Championship Series and then went on to defeat the uh, the evil empire in in the 2003 World Series. So, uh, I you know. Uh, from from a distance, I I do also uh, owe a lot, I think, to to the Cubs. <laughs> yeah, I think I, I covered that a little bit in the book with the uh, um, uh, the, uh, the guy that, who actually caught the ball uh, or or interfered with the ball. Actually, uh, he got death threats. He actually had to leave the city. He's you know it was it wasn't was not until the Cubs won the World Series that the, the the team itself formally invited him back to be a part of the celebration because he's been, you know, not only ostracized and chased out of the city, but people were threatening to kill the poor guy. But um, that's how serious they take the baseball. <laughs> well, Jerry, is is there? I mean, we've covered a lot of ground here. Is there any topic that you cover in the book that um, we haven't discussed that you you wanted to point out uh, or mention? 
Well, maybe. Um, uh, yeah, we did cover a lot of ground uh, in, in, you know, the, obviously much more detail in the book. But some of the things that I did, did mention there were um, uh, some of the iconic stadiums. We talked about Wrigley Field. Uh, I think it's still the second oldest um, baseball stadium in the um, National League or, or in Major League Baseball, actually. But it has quite a, an interesting history behind it. The Chicago Stadium uh, was another one that's no longer there. It's been replaced by the United Center, which is now the home to the um, both the, the Bulls and the Blackhawks. But the Chicago Stadium was really uh, a, a major center of uh, boxing matches and then, then housed the original uh, Chicago Blackhawks ice hockey team in uh, for, for many years. But some of the most iconic boxing matches in the history of that sport took place in, in that uh, edifice. And Soldier Field itself, as I said, is, has been uh, around since um, mid-1920s. Um, it has housed not only, uh, you know, tremendous uh, football games, but boxing matches as well. Some of the top boxing matches took place there, as well as all kinds of things. Rodeos, ski jumping, auto races, uh, the 1959, I believe it was, Pan American Games all took place at Soldier Field, so it has quite a history of its own. Um, so the, the stadiums, I think, are of particular significance in, in uh, Chicago, as well as uh, some of the um, great teams and you know um, other particular factors in, in the rise of sport throughout the country. Well, Jerry, uh, we've taken up a, a lot of your time. So we're, we're at over 50 minutes uh, uh, at, by this stage of the game. Um, I, I, I love the book. It is it is a, a wonderful, wonderful read as as are all of your works. Um, I, I I I think this is a project. This is a man, a book that people really need to to look at because it's not just the the flavor of the city, but how sport is bigger than just simply what the action that takes place on the field. Yeah, I would certainly agree. I thank you for your, your compliments. Uh, but I, I think Chicago is this really diverse city where you can see sport as a primary factor in the building of a community, in providing a, uh, a unity and also a collective identity as something beyond uh, just a, a, an ethnic, a racial, or religious group. is something bigger than that. Yeah. Well... Thank you so much for your time, uh, and uh, you know I, I just strongly suggest that everyone who listens to this podcast go out and pick up a copy of Sport and the Shaping of Sport Identity in Chicago. It's a wonderful, wonderful read. Thank you very much, Jerry. Thank you, Jorge.